Let's bow together. And Father, we do again come before you and thank you for your tremendous mercy towards us, your tremendous grace, your kindness, your love, that uh, you sent your son for us and he willingly came and he died for our sins. And Father, we thank you that we have a great high priest, merciful in the heavens, Jesus, your son, who intercedes for us, Lord God, who is gracious and kind, who gave himself for us. Father, I thank you that we can look in your word tonight, today, and I pray you prepare our hearts, that we'd be ready to receive it and allow you to work in us that which is pleasing. Bless your word as it goes out. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what is it that motivates you to do the things that you do? What motivates you on a daily basis when you get up in the morning, when you go to work, whether it's school, whether it's with your family, whatever it is, whether it's free time, what what motivates you to do what you do every day? You see, the Bible reveals that for those who have not come to Christ yet, that their motivation is simply their own desires. Before I came to Christ, I lived my life for myself. I just did what I felt was the best thing, and I lived my life for myself. Well, what about those who know Christ? What motivates you to do what you do? Uh, how do you, motivates you how, in, concerning how you interact with people? What's your motivation and how you conduct yourself every day? Well, we, ultimately we see in Scripture our motivation should be to please the Lord Jesus Christ in our relationship with him. But yet there are things within the word of God that help us understand even more so what we should be motivated to do each day and why. We're going to be looking at how to live in light of the return of Jesus Christ. So would you turn your Bibles to Second Peter? And we are rapidly coming to a close in our study in Second Peter. And so as Bob mentioned, be praying for what the Lord would have us look at next. But we're going to be looking at Second Peter and just to review the context for those who haven't been with us and just for those who have, uh, the Apostle Peter is writing to those who have a like faith, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. It is writing, he's writing to believers in Jesus Christ. And this book is simply about growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's about a real relationship with Jesus. And if you might remember that in chapter 1, Peter made it clear, and I might have said Paul earlier, I mean Peter, Peter made it clear that uh, that we have been given everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. And we have His precious and magnificent promises. The Lord God opened our hearts to the reality of our sin by sharing the gospel with us. He convicted us and called us unto a relationship with Him. And He uses His Word to grow us in respect to salvation. We have everything we need for life and godliness and within that, we are to then act upon the truth that God has brought forth and obey him in the context of faith. We saw within this book in chapter 1 that we should be manifesting the characteristics of a real relationship with Jesus. We should be excelling in our moral excellence, our knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, and brotherly kindness, and love. And Peter made it clear that if these qualities are yours, you possess all of these and they are increasing they render you neither useless or unfruitful in your relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, when God's word is working in our hearts, it's going to manifest in these areas and in other areas we see in Scripture. And so with that in mind, he shares these, these truths. And then he says, I want to remind you of these things. I want to stir you up by way of reminder. Stir you up. And he then goes to explain an experience that Peter had on the Mount of Transfiguration and a, a real experience, a real God experience. The, the, the Lord was transfigured before him, but yet he said, we have the word made more sure. We have something that is more sure. We have the written word of God, which we do well to pay heed or attention to. You see, and, and it really we saw that word means we do beautifully to pay attention to the word of God. And from that, he says, it's, it's just that it's God's word, that it didn't come from man, but, but men moved by God spoke from him, right? And so in chapter one, we see that we have everything we need for a relationship with Jesus through the true knowledge of him by his word. And then chapters two and three in the book of second Peter are really about threats to our relationship with Jesus. 
Yes, you can be a believer in Jesus Christ and you can be sidetracked. There are things that can pull us away where we don't even realize we're not walking rightly with the Lord. And so Peter reveals in chapter 2 that there were false teachers in the past relating to Israel were false prophets, but there will be false teachers among you. And he talks about them, those who would secretly introduce things. They would twist and mold their words. They would, they would use believers. They would go after the unstable souls. And we saw that Peter identified them. He said they were springs without water. They, they appeared to be those who would bring forth gushing that water, but yet you get nothing. It seems like you're going to get what you need for your relationship with Jesus, but ultimately what you get steers you after your own desires. It's very subtle. And so Peter warns us about those people, those people who pose as though they will feed you spiritually. This is chapter 2, and you can read through that on your own time. They, they, they have known the truth of Jesus Christ, but internally they have turned away. Now, they never came to faith, but they've known the truth. They've turned away, and now they're manifesting their own sinful lust by deceiving and reveling over their deceptions within the body of Christ. And so these greedy fakers on their way, as, as we would see, to hell... Uh, the apostates, although they knew the right way, have turned away and they are a danger to the body of Christ. We're to beware. And then he moves into chapter 3, continuing those thoughts, saying, hey, this is the second letter I'm reminding you uh, of these things, that you should pay attention to what the prophets had spoken. You should pay attention to what the Lord Jesus spoke through the apostles, knowing something, knowing that in the last days mockers would come. Mockers would come with their mocking and they would try to deceive believers by lessening the word of God or by outright mocking them. We have an example here in chapter 3. And that leads us to where we're at in our passage. So would you turn your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 3. And we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 15. And now again, as I've shared, this is one unit. The whole chapter is one unit. And we would, we would be here all, we wouldn't have a Mother's Day lunch, would you? We'd be here all day long if we were doing the whole portion. So what I want to do is just, I want to read up through it what we've already seen in chapter 1, verse 1, up to verse 11. And then we'll, that's where we're going to study, but I'll read through 11 through 15. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And remember, we saw verse 3. It's really not just know, but knowing. There's a lot of other versions that translate it that way. You remember what God's people said before, the prophets and the apostles, and then knowing something, knowing something. He says in verse 4, or excuse me, uh, in, uh, in verse 3, knowing, or literally knowing this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. That's the same guys you read about in chapter 2. That's really what it is. We see the description of them in chapter 2. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. This is what we saw last time, that there would be those who come and who mock the word of God, saying basically, hey, where's the promise of his coming? He hasn't come yet. Everything's the same. The world just keeps going the same as it's been. And so they point you to your own observation to deceive you to not trust in the promises of God. Yes, the world has continued the same, but that doesn't mean that God isn't going to keep his word because he has so already. Notice what he says here. He says uh, in verse 5, For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at one time was destroyed, being flooded with water. He says when they maintain this, and we saw this last time, it willingly escapes their notice. They, they deliberately reject the reality that by God's word, he spoke into the, the creation to existence. Light be and light was. And that by God's word in the past, he brought a flood judgment upon the earth. And yet he has promised this promise. And by his word, he's going to keep his promise. That's the implication. And notice he says here, uh, through which the world was destroyed at one time, verse 6, being flooded with water. Verse 7, but the present heavens and earth, that's what we're in right now, the present heavens and earth, uh, by his word, God keeps his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 
But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then our passage. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening, looking for, excuse me, and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Tremendous passage in which God tells us what is going to happen in the future. No one knows what's going to happen apart from what God declares. What he declares... And I've already shared the first few verses where we saw that we should be remembering uh, God's word, that there would be mockers who come. They would be mocking, but they ignore the word of God that God brought forth before, and they ignore the reality that this present heavens and earth will ultimately be destroyed. They willingly ignore that. We see that in, back in verse 7. But the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment, and destruction of ungodly men. We saw this last time, and just in review, although the mockers say, hey, it's never going to come. Christ isn't going to come. There's not going to be any judgment. Nothing's going to happen. It's all going the same, peace and safety. That day will come. That day will come. This present heavens and earth, what we are living in right now, is being increasingly stored up for God's judgment. And notice what he says in the end of verse 7, the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. You see, God hates sin. God is a holy God. And God was gracious to send his son Jesus to die for our sins. But he will come again in glory and in judgment. Uh, For those who reject him, it'll be judgment. For those who have received him, it's going to be glory when he comes. And so there is, as we saw last time, a judgment day. There is a judgment day. I'm not going to read all the passages we looked at last week. You can get the CD and look at those. But we recognize it is appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. Scripture reveals there is clearly a judgment day. We looked at all those passages in Matthew 10 and 11 and 12 where Jesus speaks of in the day of judgment. He speaks of that specifically. Uh, one of those passages, Matthew chapter 12, he says, Uh, The good man, verse 35, out of the treasure brings forth what is good. The evil man, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified. By your words you shall be condemned. We saw in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, who, who then used, uh, used his wisdom and his time to do some things that weren't good. Read through Ecclesiastes. And he saw that it was all vanity. It was all worthless. He, ser- he went after every pleasure there could be, basically. And he saw it was all worthless. In the very end of what he says, he says the conclusion, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commands or commandments because this applies to every person. Why? For God will bring every act into judgment, even which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. There is a judgment day. We saw this last time, Acts chapter 17, that he is appointed judgment by the man, by proving, raising him from the dead, Acts 17. Christ Jesus is the judge. And therefore he declares... To all men everywhere that you should repent. Why should you repent? Why does God tell you and I to repent? Why? Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. And as we'll see in a moment, he doesn't want you to be judged for your sin. He wants you to be pardoned and forgiven that you could be with him forever and ever in glory. So there is a judgment day. 
But we saw that this judgment day is also associated. Last time we looked at it, we need to look at this because it's all connected. But we saw that this judgment is associated with, with the day of the Lord. Look down in verse 10. Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. We saw that, that the earth's going to be burned up. The elements, the stoichia, the ABCs of this universe, the, the, I think it's speaking of the molecules, by the way, it's all going to get burned up. It's all going to go away. He says it's going to happen. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. How does a thief come? comes when you don't expect it. comes suddenly, right? And so we see that's going to happen. And we talked about this last time, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in it, but we talked about the day of the Lord. You see, man is having his day now. Man gets to do whatever he wants and can get away with it for an entire lifetime, basically. There's some initial consequence, certain things like that, but gets away with it. But God will have his day where he takes care of sin and makes things right. It's the day of the Lord that is prophesied throughout the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the day of the Lord in which Christ will ultimately culminate that in coming back. And there are things that are associated with the day of the Lord, which are a new heavens and a new earth. The old earth, as we see, being destroyed and then a new heavens and a new earth. Let's look at one passage about the day of the Lord. We looked at a lot last time, but let's review looking at one. Turn to Isaiah chapter 13. We're going to look a little later at Isaiah 65 and 66, which is really wonderful, by the way. You see, Isaiah is about the restoration of the created order. Restoration either through judgment or through salvation, through the servant, Jesus Christ, who, who died for our sins. Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6. You see, the promise is there. It's going to happen. And people are saying, bad guys, oh, it's not going to happen. Just live your life. You're fine. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But uh, the reality is what God says. Isaiah 13, 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp, and every heart, every man's heart will melt, and they will be terrified. You know, Hebrews talks about a terrifying expectation of judgment, by the way. They will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look upon one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel and with fury and burning anger, to make the land of desolation. He will exterminate its sinners from it. For the stars that I have in their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. And I will also put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. God is allowing sin to go by right now. He is allowing sin to go by. He is allowing sin to go by. He's allowing people to do horrible things, by the way. We wonder, where's God when these bad things happen? Well, God is and has promised to deal with sin and sinners and wickedness. But back in our passage, notice God is patient. He is gracious. He is unwilling for any to perish. Back in our review here in verse 8 of chapter 3 of Second Peter. But do not let this one fact escape your notice. The bad guys, hey, they willingly let God, the truth of God, escape their notice. But you, believers, don't let this escape your notice. Don't let it go by. Don't let it go by. Beloved, that with the Lord one day is as, or like, not equivalent, but like a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. He's sharing the, this, this just, just very basic point that God is separate from time. God created time. He has stepped into time. In the fullness of time, He sent forth His Son. He, he does interact in the time that He has created, but He is separate from time. A day is as a thousand years, a thousand years as a day. And then notice what he says. And let's keep reading. The Lord is not slow or hesitant about his promise, as some count hesitancy. The mockers say, hey, he's never going to come. It's never going to happen. God is not slow or hesitant about bringing his judgment on sin. He's not slow at all. But notice what he says. But is patient or long-suffering towards who? Towards you. That's you and I not wishing or desiring 
for any to perish. The term perish means to be ruined in the context. It's ruined in the context of judgment forever, the, the lake of fire. He doesn't want that. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But he says, but for all to come to repentance. Tremendous statement. The only reason Christ hasn't come in judgment is because he is saving people. He is patient. And I am so thankful for that because I lived 29 years of my life in rebellion to God, pretending to be a Christian. And God was gracious to convict me of my sin and save me. He could have come before that and I would have been judged and I would have deserved his judgment. But he is patient towards us. He's patient towards you and I. Not willing. He doesn't desire any to perish. God is a gracious God. We're going to read and we have read about his judgment, these horrible things. Yet he doesn't want it to happen. But he's a just God and he will bring it about. But first there is salvation. There is salvation. He is patient, long-suffering towards you. But if you reject him, you will be eternally punished. Let me share a few passages. Luke chapter 12, the Lord Jesus says, In verse 4, and I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more they can do. Well, that sounds like a lot, but what does God say? Don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you to fear him, the one who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, fear him. The reality is we need to fear God. He has the authority and he will deal with sin. But he's gracious. He sent his son Jesus. You know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, we're all sinful. And God sent his son Jesus. He lived the perfect life. He took on human flesh. He became like us yet without sin. He lived the perfect life and he bore our sin in his body on the cross. The penalty of sin is death and Jesus died for all of us. And God doesn't ask anything from you to do to be saved, but to turn to him from your sin, acknowledging it and believe in Jesus Christ, trusting in him, repenting, Lord God, I'm a sinner. I need you. I believe that you died for my sins and he will forgive you and you will escape the judgment that is coming. Because God is a righteous God. Like any other judge, we've seen unrighteous judges in this world. We've seen somewhat righteous judges. Righteous judges are are those who implement the appropriate punishment for the crimes. And yet we have a pardon in Jesus Christ because we deserve it. But we have a pardon. The day of the Lord will come. It will come. But yet God is patient, not willing for any to perish. Look at verse 10 back in 2 Peter Chapter 3. Actually, I'm going to read into it again from verse 9. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, to, to change your mind about your sinfulness and to turn to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. But notice what he says, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with the roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. The day of the Lord is over a period of time, but there's a lot of events that happen within that. There are a lot of things that happen. It is Yahweh's day. It is Yahweh's day where he is going to destroy this present heavens and earth. Folks, the first creation is corrupted with sin. And uh, Jesus Christ makes us right through faith in him, but he will also bring forth as we will see, a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So with that in mind, looking at our passage today, we have the motivation from what God has declared, the motivation for how we should be thinking as believers, how we should be acting. There's a motivation for us based on the fact that Christ is coming. He will bring forth judgment, but he also is patient and saving. Notice in our passage in verse 11, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what things is he speaking of? Well, what he just talked about. The day of the Lord in which, verse 10 in the middle, the heavens will pass away with a roar. Gone. 
and the elements will be destroyed with intense or intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way. That's how, what sort of people ought you to be. Who should we be as believers? What should we? What are? What ought we to be? What type of people should we be? You know, it should cause us here to think about the reality of God's judgment on sin and what he did by bringing salvation in Jesus and what he's going to do. It should cause the beloved in Christ, the redeemed, to have lives characterized by holy conduct and godliness. And that, as we will see, is from the inside, not from the outside. It'll reflect in the outside. Notice this term ought. It speaks of an absolute obligation. It speaks of being indebted. Since all these things should be destroyed this way, what should we, what ought we to be? What sort of people should we be? And that's a good question. What should believers be like in light of God's coming again in judgment? What should we be like? Notice he says we ought to be in, in, in the context in holy conduct and godliness. The term conduct speaks of our behavior. When you think of your conduct, it's what you do, it's how you do it, it's how you behave, it's your lifestyle, how you are, right? And it, notice he says in holy conduct. Now, a lot of people think of the term holy as some stuffy people sitting there like this in the church. That's holiness, right? Well, that's not what holiness is in the Bible. What, what is it? What is holiness? When he says, what sort of people ought you to be believers in holy conduct? What is holy conduct? What is holiness? Well, the term holy at its very core speaks of being separate or set apart. This term is applied to, when it is applied to specifically God, it speaks of his absolute transcendence above his creation, being separate and distinct from it. And also yet within scripture we see it speaks of his total separation from sin. He is holy. It is, it is slightly synonymous with righteousness as we're going to see. There's a parallel with it. When you think of holiness, we're going to think of also righteousness. Righteousness. Uh, turn to, uh, Revelation chapter 15, and here we have uh, the song of Moses uh, when those during the Great Tribulation were victorious over the beast in his image, singing the song of Moses. Revelation chapter 15, verse 2. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off, the, those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of gold. This is a heavenly scene, by the way. We can't totally understand it. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, singing, Great and marvelous are thy works, O Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are thy ways. Righteous and true are thy ways. The way he functions, right? Thou king of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. For all the nations will come worship before thee, for thy righteous acts have been revealed. We see a parallel parallel between holiness and righteousness. Now for... The scriptures, we see that God is holy, but yet God has and is willing through Christ to impart his holiness to believers. You know, the term saint means holy one or holy. You know, we're saints. We're holy in position. When we trust in Jesus Christ, we are cleansed of our sin. We are set apart from sin. We are holy. But we're going to see there is also an element of our sanctification. How do we live? How do we live? And practically speaking, for the believer... Holiness is conformity to the righteous character of God. Holiness is conformity to the righteous character of God. Take a look, and this is where I see this also. Turn to um, it's Hebrews chapter 12, and the, the context is discipline, that God disciplines uh, his children. That's the context. Hebrews chapter 12, and we see this here, that uh, as we... Are disciplined, it is for the goal of sharing in his holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. 
Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, speaking of the earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, this is the middle of verse 10, disciplines us for our good. What? That we might share in what? His holiness. And notice what he says. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful. I'll tell you that right now. When God spanks you, no, not fun in the moment, right? Or if our parents discipline us, not fun in the moment. Uh, but notice what he says. But jo- not joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been gumnazo, gymnazo is where we get our gymnasium, the word gymnasium from, who've been trained by it, afterwards, it yields what? The peaceful fruit of righteousness. You see, when we share in His holiness, we are manifesting His righteousness. And it is peaceful. We're going to see later on, be diligent to be found in Him in peace. So we have holiness. We have holiness. The reality that God is holy, and yet God brings forth and allows us to share in His holiness as we trust in and abide in Jesus Christ. True believers, holiness is conformity to the righteous character of God. He is righteous and his righteousness is manifest in us. You know, the reality is it's again it's it's holiness and righteousness are contrary to sinfulness. Let me read a portion of Revelation 22 verse 11. Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. Let the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Holiness is the opposite of doing wrong. It is being separate from sin. And when we think of holy conduct, think of righteous actions. Holy conduct, think of righteous actions. Well, how is this possible for us to be holy? We are so sinful. We mess up so much. Right? How is it that we are holy? Well, first and foremost, you must have had, you must be in Christ. You must have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You can't do it on your own. If you try, it becomes hypocrisy. It becomes outward religiousness. It's not true from the heart. It's hypocrisy. We need to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But once we become His children, He gives us a desire to obey Him. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, or children of obedience, literally, we're we're children of God now. We have the ability to obey him by faith. He says, do not be conformed or, or molded into the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy also yourselves in what? All your behavior. We're called to be like God. And the only way we can be like God is when we abide in Him and trust Him. You see, God takes His Word and works it in our thinking and causes us to make different decisions as we trust Him and obey Him, as we abide in Him and His Word in us. You see, we need to understand the process of holiness. It is putting off one's thinking, not being conformed to the way I used to think, but allowing God's Word to change my mind that I might then trust Him and obey Him and walk in the context of holiness. You see, apart from trusting in Jesus Christ, we can do nothing. It's in the context of relying on Him, allowing His Word to refresh my mind, not being conformed to the way I used to think, which was all about me, rather than, rather than trusting and walking in Him. So walking with Him is the process of being conformed to His image, changing our hearts and minds, being transformed. He says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior. God's calling us to it. He has called us. The ultimate goal is that we would be, be holy before Him, holy and blameless before Him. He saved us. We are holy in His sight because of Jesus, but yet He is practically speaking, causing us to live differently. And there are some motivations for that in light of God's judgment on this earth for sin. And as we'll see, a new heavens and new earth. How should we live in holy conduct? How should we live? We should be living differently. We should be living differently. And notice back in our passage in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, not good, right? At least initially. I mean, it, we want it to come, but we want people to be saved, right? 
Um, he says here, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct? It's a, it's a rhetorical question, right? What should you be? Obviously, we should be living lives of holiness, right? And then he says, and godliness. What should we be? It's not just simply our conduct, you know, righteous conduct on this earth towards one another. It's not simply that. It's also our attitudes towards the living God. Godliness. The word comes from the Greek word eusebia. You meaning well. Sabiamai meaning reverence. Uh, the, the word reflects an inner attitude of reverence and worship for God, which manifests in pleasing activity. Godliness. Godliness. Remember we saw back in chapter 1 about godliness? Look back in chapter 1, verse uh, 2. He says in verse 2 of chapter 1, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Life is our holy conduct, by the way. And then godliness, our, our demeanor towards God and thus our, our actions. Everything, right? Everything we need. Notice he says in verse 4, For by these he has granted us his magnificent, precious and magnificent promises. We have the word of God, which is God's powerful word, which changes our hearts and enables us to see things differently and thus walk differently. We have his word. We have his word. And then notice, I shared this also, it should change our behavior. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. Now for this very reason, for the reason of the reality that we have everything we need, we've got God's word. For this very reason, he says, applying all diligence in your faith, you're trusting Jesus, supply moral excellence in your moral excellence, knowledge in your knowledge, self-control in your self-control, perseverance in your perseverance, godliness. Aha, godliness. You see, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we, believers in Jesus, be in holy conduct and godliness? This should be convicting if some of your conduct isn't right, if some of your actions aren't right, so your attitudes towards the Lord or others are not right. It should be convicting. And notice he says, says this, he qualifies this statement. Back in our passage, look at verse 12. He qualifies it. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the earth and its works or elements will melt with intense heat. Now the grammar of verses 11 and 12 is such that the main question, the main verb is what sort of people ought you to be? And then there's two participles, looking and hastening. What should we be in our conduct and godliness as we are looking and hastening? Looking for... And hastening. Well, what does this mean? The term looking for speaks of a continual anticipation or expectation or awaiting. You know, if you've got someone who's, who's, who's gone on a trip and they're coming back and you're standing there waiting at the, you're waiting for them to come back. You're expecting them. There's an expectation. Continual anticipation or expectation. And the term hastening speaks of an urging something on an eagerness for something to happen soon. Hasting. I want this to happen. My desire is for this to happen. Now, it's translated in a way that makes it sound like we can make it happen faster. That's not what it means. We're not going to make Jesus come any faster. It's a desire on us. Hasting. Oh, come, come, Lord Jesus. Since all these things are being destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening, but what? Hastening or urging or desiring to happen. Urging on. Come, Lord Jesus. What? What does he say? The coming of the day of God. We should be eager and awaiting the coming of the day of God. And in the context, it's the coming of Christ for him to have his day. It's, as we saw earlier, the day of the Lord. He's going to come again, right? He's going to come again, and it's that day of judgment and destruction. But we'll see in a minute there's also something that's really wonderful for believers. A new heavens and a new earth. You see, we should have a desire, and we should be looking forward to not sinners being destroyed in judgment, as we're going to see, because we're to regard God's this time as, as, as salvation. But we should be looking forward to God making it right. When everybody has rejected Christ 
that he makes it right for those who have rejected him by destroying them in punishment. And for those who have accepted him and trusted him and been forgiven, there is a new heavens and a new earth. We should be looking forward and hastening the day. This world is lousy. There's sin, there's death, there's sorrow, there's pain, there's crying. You know, you can have a little fun here and there, but there's always the reminder of sin, of sin. Some of you may be hurting really badly right now. You may have issues in your life that are causing you to be distressed. This world is not good right now. It is not good. It is, it is, it is, it is uh, immersed in sin. But God's going to make that right. And we as believers should be focused on that. We should have an eager anticipation for God to do what he has promised. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. And I want to share some passages about how believers should have this mindset. He's actually saying, Peter's saying, hey, this is your mindset, but how should you live in light of this, right? Looking forward and hastening. And if it isn't our mindset, then I'll tell you right now, we've been caught up in this world. Our mind has been distracted from the things God would have us think about. And that's probably why our lives are so messed up, right? We need to focus on the things above. So, uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Brethren, join me in following my example and observe those who walk, this is Paul writing, according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I've often told you, and I, now I tell you weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is their destruction, whose God is their appetite, or their desires, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now, Christians don't just ignore the reality of what's going on here. We don't set our minds on it. We see it from a different perspective. Notice what he says. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now, for the Philippians, their citizenship in Rome was pretty important. He's saying, hey, our citizenship is in heaven. From which you also, what? From which we, from which also we, what? Eagerly await or wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into the conformity with his body, the body of his glory, by the exertion of the power which he has to subject all things to himself. We're going to be glorified when Jesus comes. He's going to make us righteous in every way. Our souls have been redeemed. Our bodies are going to be glorified. Tremendous, wonderful reality. Now, the day of the Lord, ultimately a little timing for you. For believers right now, God is gracious. We are not going to go through his wrath. Jesus is going to come and take his church out of the way. And that's what we're seeing. And we're eagerly awaiting that, right? But what comes from that and is associated with that is ultimately him making everything right and then a new heavens and a new earth. And we see all these things together. You see, the Thessalonians, they understood. And three weeks of, after three weeks of salvation, they understood. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you've been saved more than three weeks, I would recommend to read, obviously, the Bible. But read 1 Thessalonians. This is what Paul taught them in the first three weeks of their faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. For they themselves report about what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. They believed the gospel. They were saved. They repented, right? And what? To wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. If you're a believer, we should be thinking about the reality of what Christ has promised and what he will do. You see, if you're comfortable in this life, something's wrong. It's full of sin and sorrow and wickedness. not saying we can't enjoy and have joy in the Lord in the midst of these things, but it is full of sin, sorrow, and wickedness. Turn to Titus chapter Two, a little farther up, Titus chapter 2. I'll tell you right now, if we are not heavenly minded, focused on Christ and what he's ultimately going to do, we're not going to walk in holy conduct and godliness. I'll tell you that right now. We're going to get caught up in the stuff and the issues and stuff, and our minds are going to be messed up. We've got to renew our minds. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. The offer is open to all of you. God's grace has come in Jesus, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly, notice, the, notice these words, in the present age, looking for, 
the blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. It is an integral part of a true believer's life to have an expectation of Christ's coming again. Integral part. And he says, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. The bad guys will distract you into the issues of this life. That's what the teaching is going to be like. You're going to be all about yourself and all about this life. It's like a fountain of water, you think, but there's nothing there. We need to get our hearts and minds on the truth. Turn to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. If you've truly been redeemed, there's going to be an element in you that desires the coming back of Christ. And if there isn't, something's wrong, or it's been suppressed, or it's been, been, you've been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, your own sin, by the way. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Inasmuch as it is appointed man for men once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear for a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly wait or await him. Those who eagerly await him. Are you looking forward to the coming of Christ, believer? Are you looking forward to what he has promised? That coming, as we're going to see, is us being glorified. We're going to be changed. No more sin. No more battle with the flesh where I do the things I don't want to do. I, I, I act and think ways I shouldn't think. And I'm ashamed of those things. And I'm confessing. Do you look forward to when that will be done, when you'll be righteous? Righteous, practically speaking. Renew your heart and mind with the word of God and be eagerly awaiting and hastening the day of God. Now, within this, specifically, there's a tremendous promise. Notice our back in our passage in 2 Peter chapter 3. Since all these things, verse 11, shall be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Confess sin. Get rid of those attitudes. Confess it. Grow up in Jesus. Trust him. Focus on the Lord. It says here, what sort of people should we be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. Notice this tremendous verse, verse 13. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, folks, what do you like better, a new car or an old car? Right? Old car's worn out, right? It's, it's worn out. It's got problems, whatever it might be. And just as an example, this earth is worn out with sin. Christ will reign for a thousand years, but ultimately he will bring in a new heavens and a new earth. We are looking beyond this to a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness lives or dwells. Tremendous promise, but according to his promise. You see, he's promised these things. And these promises are all connected together. When he comes and takes us away and changes us, then he has his day of judgment, and he's going to destroy ultimately then the heavens and the earth. But after that, he's going to bring in a new heavens and new earth. And we look forward to this. But where is this promise? Where has he promised this? Go back to Isaiah chapter 65, middle of your Bibles. Isaiah 65. And again, the book of Isaiah is about the restoration of the created order through judgment or through redemption through the servant, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. Isaiah chapter 65, right in the end of Isaiah, verse 16. Because he who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by the God of truth. The blessed are those who have trust in the blessed one, right? Jesus Christ for salvation. Those who have, who, who have turned from their sins, who have trusted in the one who was pierced for our transgressions, who died for our sins. And he who swears in the earth swear, shall swear by the God of truth because his former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. God's going to make it new. And the junk and the wickedness and all that stuff is not going to come to mind. He says, behold, I created new heavens and a new earth. Go to Isaiah 66. 
up a chapter, verse 22. Here we have a contrast at the very end of the book of a new heavens and earth, and then also the, uh, the uh, also hell. Isaiah 66:22. For just as the new heavens and new earth which I which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name shall endure. It shall be from the new moon and from the and to the new moon, from the Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Then they shall go forth to look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for the worm shall not die and the fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be in abhorrence to all mankind. But ultimately we see there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall be remembered no more. We look forward to that. But you can only look forward to it if you're thinking about it, right? Turn to Revelation chapter 21, where we actually see again this promise of a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation chapter 21, and this is after the great white throne judgment. This is after God has destroyed the first heavens and earth. They have fled from his presence. You'll see that here. Revelation 21, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. It means it's beautiful, right? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. See, sin is gone now. Okay? And, and, uh, he, sh- and he shall dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be among them. And notice this, He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall no longer be any death, There shall no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. New heavens and earth, no more death, pain, crying, or mourning. You see, that all is associated with sin, by the way, and that's gone. New heavens and a new earth. And notice what he says, and he who sits on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things, what? New. And he said to me, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. If you know you need Jesus, he'll give you salvation for no price. It's free. Come to him. And he who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers, immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars... Their part will be with the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, which is the second death. He's going to make all things new, believer, if you've been saved. No more pain, no more sorrow, no more death, no more tears, no more mourning. We look forward to that. We look forward to that. Look at Revelation 22, the next chapter up, verse 14. Here we see that there's righteousness dwelling there, but there's going to be those who aren't righteous outside. Blessed are those, Revelation 22:14, who wash their robes that they may have a right to either the tree of life and may enter the gates into the city. Outside of the dogs, the sorcerers, the moral persons, the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Back in our passage, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Sin is not going to live there. We have indwelling sin in us right now, even as believers, don't we? We have sin in this world. But we will be glorified and we will be with Jesus with no sin. No sin. And we are looking forward to that. Where righteousness dwells. If you're not looking forward to that, maybe you don't know the Lord or you have been hardened by the deceitfulness of this life and sin. Do you eagerly look forward to and await a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells? Do you await this? Do you, do you look forward to it? You know, this world will cloud your eyes. It'll cloud your vision. It'll cloud you. Notice back in our passage, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, what things? Obviously, the coming of the Lord and then a day in which there's a new heavens and earth where righteousness lives. 
and dwells. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, your believers, since you look for these things, two commands. One, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Second command, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. Therefore, therefore, beloved, true believers, those who have trusted in Christ, those who are loved by God and love one another. Beloved, since you're eagerly anticipating and awaiting these things, since you are, be diligent. Be diligent. That, that word diligent means to make every effort. Be diligent to do something. To be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. Be diligent that when He comes, you are walking within holy conduct and godliness. Yes, we fail, we mess up, but we should be confessing sin right away, not letting anything go. Be diligent. Make every effort. When you blow it, you confess it. You trust the Lord. You walk with Him. To be found by Him when He comes. When He comes, He's going to see you either in sin or not, right? Not that we're perfect, but if we're walking with Him, by and large, we want to be found by Him in peace. You see, there's no peace for the wicked. There's no peace for us when we're in sin. Uh, when those who are separated from God, there's no peace with God. But we know that there is the peaceful fruit of righteousness when we're walking with the Lord by his power and strength, letting his word change my mind towards him and towards people, seeing things rightly, obeying his word. I'm in peace. I'm in peace. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless. That means there's no blemishes. No stains. You see, we mess up, but we confess. We wash our clothes quickly through confession, right? We confess and He forgives us. Make every effort to be spotless, blameless. Nothing can stick. You see, when Christ comes for His church, that we would be found not in a state of sin. You know, if you've got attitudes or you've got issues, you've got sin going on, you've got worry that you're not dealing with, you're going to be found in a state that is not blameless. You're not at peace. Confess sin. Yes, you'll be tempted. Walk with the Lord. Confess. Be godly. You see, there will be those who will be found in a state of sin, and it's not good. There will be those who are found in a state of not walking with the Lord when he comes. They're believers. Not good. There will be those who are found in a state of ungodliness. Not good. But when Christ comes, we should be diligent to be found by Him in godliness, in holy conduct. Obviously, peace, spotless, and blameless. He's talking about the motivation for holiness. Christ is coming. A motivation because of what He's done and what He will do and what He is going to do should cause us to think differently about the things we do in this life, the things we allow to go on in our heads, the things we actually do. Turn to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. You know, if you're holding a grudge towards someone, you've got an issue, you're worrying about things, and Christ comes, you're going to be ashamed. Confess it. Be set free. Be set free. 1 John 2:28 And now little children abide in him remain rest in Jesus trust in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming Will you be ashamed if he was to come right now will you be ashamed You don't have to be you can confess you can be forgiven Look a little farther 1 John chapter 3, there should be motivation for godliness. See how great a love the Father has bestowed us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God. It has not appeared yet what we will be. We're going to be glorified. It's pretty amazing. Without sin. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope 
fixed on him, purifies himself just as he is pure. There's a motivation to not sin, to walk with him instead when we're tempted to trust him to deliver us, when we fail to confess quickly. If you're living in a sinful manner all the time, don't be deceived. Maybe you don't know the Lord. But believers can get caught up. And this should motivate us to holiness and godly conduct. Folks, we're not perfect, but we need to walk with the Lord. And I'm, I'm stunned at times as a shepherd to see how people can hold on to stuff. You'd be ashamed if he comes. Let it go. I'm stunned to see how believers can be so caught up in sin. We are all tempted. It's the same temptation for everybody Let it go. Trust the Lord. Be forgiven. Confess. You see, Christ has promised us a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells, and that's where we're going. And Christ is going to take us first and then deal with sin and sinners, and then he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. Now notice there's one last command here in our passage. He says, Be diligent to be found in peace and spotless and blameless, but we're also commanded, verse 15, we're just going to see the first half of this verse and finish up, to regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation. We saw that. As we wait, the only reason we're not on our way to eternity and there now is because Jesus is saving people. He's patient. That's the only reason. He is saving people and he is making them like himself. They are being built up, becoming like Christ. Regard the patience, it's a command, believer, of our Lord to be salvation. We're also commanded to be diligent to be found in peace. That's a command. God is commanding you to do that, to be diligent. Think of someone who's diligent in their work. They're very focused on it, right? These are commands. I want to close with a passage. Turn to uh, Colossians chapter 3. You see, right now is a time of salvation, but Jesus will come. Regard his delay to be salvation. That's the way we should think. The only reason we're not on our way to eternity is because he's saving. And he's using us in that process to bring people to faith and to grow them up in their faith. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking what? The things above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things of earth. Why? For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Set your mind on the things above. How will you be found by him? For some of you, when Christ comes, you'll be found in your sin. If you die today and you haven't trusted him, you'll be found in your sin. And God is gracious. He's calling upon you to confess, repent, and receive the free gift of salvation. You've got to change your mind about your sinfulness and your need of a Savior and turn to him and call for him. He'll save you. He'll save you. For some believers here, you're true believers, yet you're not dealing with your sin. You're not being diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Confess the stuff. You know what it is. Confess it. Be set free. Don't let sin go. Whatever it might be, confess it. And for all of us, we need to be focused on and looking forward to and awaiting and hastening the day of God when he will take care of sin and sinners, the unrepentant, And he will bring in a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your motivation for us to trust you and obey you. Lord, just confess that it's so easy to get caught up in the things of this life. Not that we're to ignore them, but we're to see them through what you say and the things above. Father, I I just pray that we would be those who are diligent to be found by your Son in peace, spotless and blameless. And Lord, we know you're speaking to believers because you call them beloved. Lord, may we, may we trust you. May we walk with you. May we confess sin quickly. May we be those who walk by your Spirit, that you would be glorified when you come. 
Father, I pray for those who don't know you. Lord, I pray that they would recognize there is a judgment day. And everything they've said and done will be judged. And yet you're a gracious God who sent your son, the judge, to first die for their sins. I pray they would turn and believe and call upon his name. Father, lastly, I pray you would just use this passage to work in our hearts to motivate us to be seeking the things above, to be diligently desiring to walk in a holy manner, worthy of your calling. And I know we can only do that by trusting your son, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son, Jesus. It is his name we pray.